So that means we're going to only cover tonight the first five verses. So Revelation 14 verses 1 to 5, which works well because being it's the first Wednesday of the month, we try to close our devotional time, at least we try to close our devotional time a little early. Uh, that will allow us to break into our three groups for prayer. And so hopefully this will give us more help to do that and not to take up all the time in devotion. But nevertheless, Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one can learn that, learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones. Now, brethren, we're going to be told who the 144,000 are. Just read a little further and you'll probably be told or you'll give further information as to the identity of something. Verse 4, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now remember that Revelation chapter 14 finishes the fourth of seven cycles that recount the time between our Savior's first and second coming. So chapter 14 is the end, finishes that fourth cycle. And it's for that reason we're, we're going to find in chapter 14, heaven and hell again. We're going to find Jesus' second coming, salvation of his people, and the damnation of his enemies. We've seen that already, haven't we, over and over again. So chapter 12 describe the wrath of the dragon in having failed to devour the male child, that is Christ, he now seeks to destroy the woman and her offspring. That's the church both uh, as a whole and then in individual members. Chapter 13, if you remember, described how the dragon seeks to destroy the woman through two beasts that represent political opposition and religious deception. So that brings us to chapter 14, which describes God's faithful people as victorious over the dragon and their eternal rest and reward. So we find chapter 14 describes God's people in a slightly different way than we saw in chapter 13. In chapter 13, we saw God's people being overtaken by the dragon. And we said, if you remember last week, that that means that he kills them. It doesn't mean that he destroys them or he, or, or he unchristians them. It just means that God allows the dragon through the two beasts to put to death many of his beloved people. And now we find even though the beasts who are given authority by the dragon overtakes them, kills them, slaughters them, martyrs them, we're going to find they're nevertheless standing victorious on the Mount of Zion with the Lamb. So really, 
chapter 14 is going to give us just a slightly different perspective on these ones who are being slaughtered by the beasts and the dragon in the previous chapter. Though they're being put to death, brethren, they're exceedingly victorious in every sense of the term. Thus, we could say chapter 14 provides a contrast, whereas chapter 13 described God's people as overcome by the beast, chapter 14 describes them faithful to the lamb. Okay, they're faithful to the lamb while being overcome by the beast or the dragon. That's how we could possibly tie, tie the two chapters together. They're being overcome, they're being put to death, they're being hated, martyred, persecuted by the beasts. That is, by this wicked world, controlled by the devil, to put it plainly. And yet they're victorious, brethren, because now we're going to see all the while this 144,000, God's elect people, have a mark on their forehead, and they're kept safe from the beasts, controlled by the dragon. And in fact, I want to suggest to you, I think, five things somewhat quickly about the 144,000 mentioned in verse 1. Notice first their location. Verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now, you might know Mount Zion is a reference to Christ's heavenly city. Right? It's borrowing the imagery of the Old Testament. Jerusalem in the Old Testament was built on Mount Zion, one of the mountains upon which the city rested. And so in the Old Testament, oftentimes Mount Zion and Jerusalem are spoken of as the same place. Here it's a reference to the heavenly city, to Christ in heaven with his beloved people. Now this term actually, Mount Zion, in the New Testament is only used twice The other time is in Hebrews 12. And in both places, Hebrews 12 and Revelation 14, it's a reference to Christ's heavenly city or kingdom, which includes Christians in heaven and Christians on earth. In other words, all Christians on earth, all the Christians in heaven, together make up the heavenly Jerusalem. And I say that because of Hebrews 12 and 22. Listen to how the apostle put it. But you have come to Mount Zion. Now he's speaking to these Hebrew Christians. You've come to Mount Zion. It's not not that you will go to Mount Zion. That's true. In fact, later on in this chapter, we're going to see that. When they die, they go to their eternal rest and reward. Brother, we're going to go to Mount Zion when we die. But this text in Hebrews 2.22 says, you've already come to Mount Zion. Now notice how the apostle describes Mount Zion. He says, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Remember those angels worshiping the Lamb in heaven right now, along with those who died in Jesus. And then he says, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Okay, So our Presbyterian brothers have general assemblies. And uh, our Arbka Reformed Baptist brethren have a yearly general assembly where delegates from all the uh, churches gather at one place and they talk business for a couple of days. It's called the GA or general assembly. But brother, what are those in comparison to this general assembly? This general assembly includes every Christian 
alive or dead. Every Christian on earth and in heaven, they make up one general assembly. They make up one grand city called Mount Zion. All right? So the Lamb is with the 144,000. That means the 144,000 represent all of the elect on heaven and earth. All of God's people, some are in heaven, some are on earth, but nevertheless, we all make up one grand heavenly Jerusalem built upon the heavenly Mount Zion. That's their location. Now notice it describes Christ as a lamb. Why is that? Well, for a couple reasons. First, if you remember, it's in contrast to the beast, the false prophet of the previous chapter, who's said to have lamb-like attributes. Remember, he was a false Christ. He claimed to be Christ. And so he's described back in chapter 13, 11, as like a lamb. Well, this isn't one who's merely like a lamb. This is the lamb. And secondly, we're going to find that the concept of redemption is laced through this passage. And wherever there's going to be redemption, there of necessity had to be the payment. And we're going to find here in a moment that Christ redeemed us, not with silver and gold, but with his own precious blood. He shed his blood as the Lamb of God. Listen to what Joe Beakey said. The comfort of Revelation is that even now the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion in the Jerusalem that is from above. Remember, brethren, the point of the book of Revelation is to encourage these seven churches who are in the midst of uh, being mistreated and persecuted. He goes on to say, The king of kings reigns from God's holy hill, and no powers of Antichrist can thwart the purposes of God's grace. Now, when I read through these verses, I, I think of Psalm 2. Because if you remember, Psalm 2 starts out by talking about why are the people and the nations and the kings of the nations in a rage? They've all collectively gathered together, what? To set themselves against God and his anointed. That sounds like chapter 12 and 13, doesn't it? Remember the dragon. He's excited, the nations. To come after the male child. And then because he can't get to the male child. He's going after his bride. The church. Why, why, why has the dragon. Excited his beasts. To come against the male child. And his beloved bride. Perhaps we can put it like that. Paraphrasing the first verses of Psalm 2. What does it go on to say? God who's in the heavens what? Laughs. And then he says. I have established my king on my holy hill. That's talking about Jesus' ascension. Remember, go back to 12, chapter 12, when it talks about how the dragon was trying to kill the male child. And then it says, he was taken up to heaven and sat at the right hand of the father. And then what does Psalm 2 go on to say? Because he's sitting at the right hand of the father. Because the father has anointed the lamb and sat him on his throne. Because he now sits in heaven on a throne uh, in Mount Zion. 
The world is what? Exhorted to humble themselves and bow themselves and kiss the son lest he become angry and you perish in the way. We're going to see that's what one of the angels later in chapter 14 is going to be telling the world, preaching the gospel, telling them to repent in light of the fact that God has anointed his son as his king at his right hand on his holy hill. All right. Christ is described as a lamb who was slain but now reigns on God's holy hill where he oversees his church, his 144,000. Some are in heaven, some are on earth. That brings me secondly to their number. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000. Now, brethren, again, we've saw this, haven't we? Look back to chapter 7 and verse 4. 7, 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. There's 12 taken, 12,000 taken from Judah, 12 from Reuben, 12 from Gad. If you add all that up, brethren, it comes up to, yes, you guessed it, 144,000. In other words, it's just a symbolic number to mean the whole of God's elect. By the way, they're sealed. You see that back there? Well, Go back there for a second. See in verse 4, they're sealed. Well, we're going to see that they're sealed in our text here in a moment, all right? They're going to have the mark, the image, the seal of the Father on their forehead. And then a little bit further in, verse 9, after these things I look still, chapter 7, and behold a great multitude which no man can number of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Brethren, this is an identical passage. Clothed with white robes, etc. Salvation belongs to the Lord, etc. Verse 10, 11. In other words, we find that the 144,000 of chapter 7 who are sealed are one and the same with the multitude no man can number and the 144,000 of chapter 14 that have the Father's name written on their foreheads. All right, so the 144,000, many people's foolish, foolish suggestions notwithstanding, and I'll put it just as strong as that, is nothing other than a symbolic number for God's elect. Just stop and think of some of those foolish suggestions. How about Hal Lindsey and his book he wrote in the 70s? It was dubbed the number one bestseller. Maybe, I don't know if it still is. Probably some other book has beat it. But it sold tens of millions of copies through the 70s all the way up until now, probably. How did he define the 144,000? Well, this is what he said. It's 144,000 Billy Grams. Now, he doesn't, he's not that foolish to believe that there's going to be literally 144 Billy Grams. But what he means to say is, this is going to be 144 evangelists that are going to go off and, and, and win people for Jesus during the thousand-year millennial. Well, that's not true, brother, for every reason. But let me just say, because what we have here are a description, is a description of the elect who were redeemed. This is not a description of some Christians, friends. It's a description of all Christians. 
But worse than that probably is Jehovah Witnesses who believe that this 144,000 refers to the truly faithful ones who will inherit the earth. And then, of course, you know, after their numbers exceeded 144,000, they altered their theology. But nevertheless, that's what they believe, technically, and they still believe that, in fact, and it's a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie from the second beast, the false prophet. It's one way that the dragon deceives people into hell is by believing nonsense like the second of those options. And, and he confuses many by believing the first option. No, brethren, it's much simpler to understand it and far more biblical to understand that the 144,000 is nothing more, nothing less than the elect, redeemed, taken from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation. That's their number, 30, their seal. Having his father's name written on their foreheads. This is their seal and counterpart to those who bear the mark of the beast. Remember we saw last week that the wicked bear the mark of the beast on their foreheads. And I said that that underscored identity. Brethren, there's only two types of people in the world, right? There's those who, who have the mark of the beast. Those are non-Christians. And those who have the mark of the Father. Those are Christians. And this mark underscores, it's not a physical mark. If we understand that the first one, the mark of the beast, is physical, then we have to, of necessity, think that the second one, the mark of the Father, is physical. Neither are physical. They're symbolic. And they represent identity. Those who have the mark of the beast belong to the beast. And they live like this world. They think like this world. Those who have the mark of the Father, who bear the name of the Father, who have the seal of the Father. They belong to the Father. And they think like the Father. Listen to what Derek Thompson said. As labels on garments identify origin and manufacturer, so the name of God on the foreheads of every believer signifies their identity and their safekeeping. Then he says this. Every believer bears the stamp Every believer bears the stamp made in heaven, right? I mean, you might have a, a sticker on the back of your shirt that says made in wherever. It might have the name of the, of the company or the place where it was, where it was built. Ownership, right? That's the, the, it identifies ownership. Well, he's saying that every Christian, as it were, has the name of the Father stamped on the forehead. Every Christian has the name of the Father stamped on the forehead. It means we belong to Him, brother. And because we belong to Him, we're protected by Him. Who has, who has the name of the Father on their forehead? All of the 144,000. Why? Because every Christian bears the name of God on their forehead. Because every Christian belongs to God. Now that's important to keep in mind because we're going to see again the concept of redemption. And redemption is always unto ownership. What you redeem, you own. It go, right? We know that. Redemption, it, 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 it brings to mind slavery. Right? We were redeemed from something, from Satan, from this world, by nature. We belong to Satan in the world, and we've been redeemed by blood of the Lamb, and now, and now we belong to God. Now, now we're His. He owns us. And now He puts His name on our foreheads. Brother, and ponder that. 
He puts his name on our foreheads. That means we're his. Yeah, we're his in terms of servitude, but we're also his by way of adoption. We're his children who are his servants, his slaves. We're both at one and the same time. Now, I really like this fourth thing. That is their song, verse 3. Verse 2 and 3. Then I heard a loud voice. I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of a loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing the harps. Okay, John is hearing something from heaven and it's exceedingly loud. It's exceedingly loud. And the singing that's so loud and so beautiful in verse 2 is identified as the singing of the 144,000 in verse 3. So verse 2, when it says a voice, it speaks of a voice because they sing in unison. Brethren, you know when we especially come to gather with God's people on the Lord's Day, there's a sense in which we enter into that heavenly new Jerusalem and with the angels and the saints in heaven, with Jesus as the worship leader, quote unquote. We all sing one big hymn of praise to his name. That's what you find back in Hebrews 12. When we all come together to worship him, we all make up one general assembly. And we all sing with a voice. Look, a voice. And then verse 3, they sing as it were a new song before the throne. Okay, let me just tell you first of all what this doesn't mean. How many times have I heard well-meaning Christians arguing for newer hymns, contemporary hymns based upon texts like this? We shouldn't sing old hymns anymore. We should sing new hymns because we sing a new song. But the problem with that, brethren, is that there's deep roots in the Old Testament to this concept of a new song. The new song here is nothing more than the same song that Moses sang, because earlier in the book of Revelation, we saw this same group is singing the song of Moses. It's the same song. It's the song of redemption, brethren. It's the song of new covenant salvation. That's what it's a song about. They sang a new song. And it's a song that only those who are redeemed can sing. Notice they sing it before the throne, before the creatures, before the elders. Verse 3b. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000, listen, who were redeemed from the earth. You know, when we gather on Sundays, or even just here a moment ago when we sang that great, beautiful hymn, by Rutherford. We were all singing, but only, only those of us who are Christian was really singing it. Only those who've been redeemed can, let me put it this way, only those who've really been saved, only those who've been redeemed from their sins can, from the heart, sing praises to the Lamb. Oh, if you're not Christian, you should still sing. I'm not saying you shouldn't. But you can't sing from the heart. You have to believe it. So, so yeah, you should still sing it. Just like if you're not Christian, you should still read your Bible and you should still come to church. But remember, none of those make you in and of themselves one of the redeemed. You have to come by faith 
to the Lamb. And when you become a Christian, then you learn. When you become a Christian, you learn how to sing this new song. And the essence of this new song is actually, by the way, told us. You know what? I can even tell you the exact lyrics to this song. You know why? Because go back to chapter 5. And we're told the very lyrics. Verse 9, and they sang a new song. Okay, these are the people who were redeemed. 5-9, and they sang a new song. There isn't two new songs. It's one new song, and here's the lyrics. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have been redeemed and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It's the same language, isn't it, applied to the 144,000? And have made us kings and priests to our God. We now belong to him, and we shall reign on the earth. Brethren, this is the song. And nobody can sing it except those who are redeemed. You know, there's a sense in which not even the elect angels in heaven can sing this song. And that's why in chapter 5 it's put not, it's not put as what the creatures sing. They just, the creatures can only sing praises to God about creation. That's what they sang about. It was the 24 elders there put for the 144,000 that can sing about redemption. You know what? In heaven, as glorious as the elect angels are, those created beings in heaven right now that are worshiping God before the throne, alongside Christians who've died in Jesus, those angelic beings, as privileged as they are, they have to fold their wings and hush their mouths when it comes to singing redemption story. Because they've never been redeemed from their sins. Only Christians can know this song, brethren. Only Christians can sing it. And here's the good news. We don't have to wait to heaven to sing it. We just sang it. And it can be old. I love the new songs. It can be old. It can be new. It can be somewhere in between. As long as it's praise to Jesus for redemption, it's a new song. Notice finally their character. Now this is where I want to close. <laughs> because the 144,000 are described in four ways. Uh, you could divide it up differently. But let's say four. Undefiled, followers, redeemed, and faultless. Now, again, keep in mind that the description here given of the 144,000 while those who died in Jesus are in heaven, those on earth are still serving Jesus, but they're both described in this way. And I say that because it describes this 144,000 as those who were. We're going to see it uses past tense. They were those on earth that, that were pure and undefiled and all that kind of stuff. In other words, this is their character while on earth. These people who are now in heaven, they were these things on earth. The inference or the implication is what? Those of us who, who are yet on earth, who are Christians, live like this or are described like this, brethren. In other words, we have a tremendous description of Christians, of the 144,000, all right? 
Notice first undefiled, verse 4. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now, I hope it's obvious, friends, this is figurative, not literal language. Woe be to God to such unsanctified, foolish hermeneutics that come to texts like this and distort it. That's Roman Catholic theology, right? They come to a text like this and they say celibacy. Here is the, 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 the priesthood. The 144,000 are the priests and the, and the, uh, and the women who, who, who vow celibacy. No, that's not true. It's not talking about physical. It's talking about spiritual and moral purity. Now, obviously, moral and spiritual purity entails physical purity. Don't get me wrong. But it goes far beyond that. This text isn't extolling celibacy. It's extolling faithfulness to Jesus as our heavenly husband. Right? That's the point here. And it's just using the imagery that the world... Okay, listen. It's using the imagery that the world is a wicked woman who seeks to tempt us to fornication. Now, doesn't that ring a bell if you interpret it like that? Let me show you very quickly. Look at 17 and and verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked to me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and made drunk with, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman. This is a woman. This is a woman that's referenced back in chapter 14. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy. By the way, he's going to use language that's, that's, um, that's borrowed from the beast of chapter 13. Full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and, and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup of abominations and the cup... Uh, and the, a fullness, uh, a couple full of abominations and the filth, filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead, on her forehead is written something, brethren. Just like those who follow the beast have a mark on their forehead, the beast herself, this wicked, godless world, brethren, has a mark on its forehead. And here's what's written on her forehead. Mystery. Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And then I saw, when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. The woman, the woman, brethren, that were kept pure from is none other than that woman that we saw back in Proverbs 1 to 9. That while we said it, 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 the woman is the world and does find expression in wicked women and wicked men, for sure. But it's this world. And if you think of it like that, then look back at verse 4. These are the ones who are not defiled with women. Or we could paraphrase it, with that woman. For they are virgins. They are pure, brethren. Morally and spiritually pure. Now, there's another text that sheds light on this, and that's 2 Corinthians 
11.2. Listen to what Paul said. I've betrothed you to one husband that I might present you as a chaste virgin. Now again, he's not talking physically there, is he? Because the husband that he's referring to is who? Jesus, right? So we're betrothed to Jesus when we become Christians. And we're anticipating the public wedding of that when he comes back. And the point here is is that Paul is seeking to keep them chaste like a virgin. He's trying to keep them having, by God's grace, introduced them to Jesus. Quote, made them Christians. Now he's seeking to keep them pure from the woman, brethren. That's exactly what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 11. And it's what John means in Revelation 14. All right? They're pure. They're undefiled. They're they're obedient. Verse 4. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Brethren, I want to suggest to you this is possibly my favorite description of a Christian. You can say, well, well, there's many descriptions of a Christian. If somebody were to ask you, what is a Christian? It's uh, a disciple of Jesus, uh, a slave of Jesus, a son of God, somebody's born again, somebody who's forgiven. There's probably a dozen or two dozen, maybe three dozen more terms you could use or phrases but I think this was one of my favorites what is a Christian a follower of the lamb Joe Beakey says and I don't know this for sure but he does that up until recently it was common in the British Isles especially in Scotland to speak of a Christian uh, in those terms when somebody says I became a Christian when I was 14 they would say I became a follower of the Lamb at 14. And notice it says that they follow him wherever he goes. Where did the Lamb go? To the slaughter. Keep in mind the original intent and context of the book, and you won't err far, brethren. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And isn't this what Jesus says to his disciples? Matthew 10, 38. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me isn't worthy of me. We have to follow him wherever it takes us. And in the context, it takes them where? To be overcome by the beast. That is to be put to death. Redeemed. Thirdly, these were redeemed. Still verse 4. From among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Now, here it's likely that John is thinking back to the Old Testament people of God. The entire Old Testament Israel is described in similar terms. The entire Old Testament Israel is described in similar terms as New Testament Israel is here. As the first fruits to God. Listen to these words. Jeremiah 2.3. After he's uh, in Jeremiah 2.3. He's reflecting upon their redemption from Egypt. Right? He brought them out of Egypt. He paid for their, for their deliverance. He redeemed them from Egypt. And Jeremiah 2.3. God says to the prophet. Israel was holiness to the Lord. The first fruits of his increase. Now, it's going back to the Old Testament practice of, of giving to God, of offering up to God the first fruits of harvest. 
the first fruits of harvest. It was symbolic of the fact that the whole harvest belonged to God. Well, this doesn't mean that there's more in addition to the 144,000, any more than when it says that Old Testament Israel was the first fruits unto God. It just means that they belong to God uniquely. My friends, everything belongs to God, but only the 144,000 are first fruits unto God. That is, only the 144,000 have been ransomed by God, have been redeemed by God, and thus belong to God in the Lamb. It's just a beautiful way to say, again, ownership. And it goes back again to the name on our forehead and to the concept of redemption. We are owned by God. We're the first fruits offered to Him. We are, as His beloved people, taken out from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation. From men is how the text puts it. And then, fourthly and finally, faultless, verse 5. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, this without deceit probably doesn't mean, well, it certainly includes, but I don't think it primarily means that they go around speaking truthfully. Uh, That's certainly true. These people don't go around and, and speak deceitfully. They speak truthfully. But I think the specific idea here is John is contrasting what our Savior said of some back in chapter 3-9 who say they are Jews and are not but lie. In other words, he's probably talking about the truthfulness of their profession. The testimony of Jesus. Their hope is in Jesus. This is their profession and it's not a lie like those in chapter 3-9. But it's truth. They are sincere in their faith and allegiance to Christ. And because of that, they are positionally now and will be when they die perfectly and eternally faultless before the throne. Now let me quickly summarize in three or four minutes with three observations. One, Christians love Christ. Now, you might ask, boy, that's a stretch. I mean, that's true. It's kind of like the little child when you ask them, what was the text Daddy preached on today? And they say, from the Bible. And they say, what was the subject Daddy preached? And then they said about Jesus. You say, well, that's true. And so you say, your first observation is, is equally generic. Christians love Christ. Well, you can make that application in any text. That's true. But I want to suggest to you that if you think about it, this observation is most beautiful. This is why they remain undefiled from the woman. Brethren, why do we remain undefiled from the woman but for love to our groom? This is why we don't defile ourselves. This is why we remain chaste and pure. Because of our heavenly groom. We love Christ. Secondly, Christians are like Christ. Christians not only follow Christ, but they're actually one with Christ. And by this I mean in describing Christians as followers of the Lamb, he describes them in similar ways that Scripture describes the Lamb. Okay, this may not be uh, readily apparent, but but I think you'll see it here in a moment. When you read through this passage, you have lamb and you have slaughter. 
Okay? And then you have no deceit found in their mouth. And then you find faultless before the throne. Brethren, those are all phrases applied to Jesus. And the first two expressly applied to Jesus in Isaiah 53. Remember in verse 7 it says that he's a lamb. Um, uh, he was le- like a lamb led to the slaughter. And then a few verses later, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. In other words, brethren, we follow him. Absolutely right. We follow him. We too go to the slaughter. We too carry our cross. We too endure hardship. And we too are truthful with our profession and with our words. Yes. But brethren, stop and think about it. None of us, none of us, none of us are any of those things perfectly. And which one of us wants to go to heaven trusting in those? Do you want to go to heaven trusting in your faithfulness? Do you want to go to heaven trusting in your, in your, pure, in your purity and in, and, in the, in the, in, and in the fact that there's no deceit found in your mouth? Or just take the last phrase, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Do you want to go to heaven trusting the fact that you are faultless? Brother, let me put it like this. While Christians live pure lives on earth. I tell you this, they go to heaven trusting not in their own purity, but they go to heaven trusting in Jesus' purity and, the, and, their, fault, and their faultless before the throne as they're in Christ. Stop and think of this text. They are faultless before the throne, before that thrice holy throne in heaven, brethren. How are you going to stand faultless before the throne in that day? Well, I said it, didn't I? At the wedding last. How does the bride make herself ready for that day? By being washed in the blood of the groom. Dressed in the merit of the groom. And filled with the spirit of the groom. Beal said saints are included in the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Because that's what John is doing. He's applying elements of of Isaiah 53 to us. He says, because they are represented by the messianic lamb who died for them and in whom was no lie or guilt. Finally, Christians will be with Christ. Verse 1, then I looked and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Here's one of those little phrases, brethren, that are just worth literally their weight in gold. And with him, 144,000. Brethren, we're with Christ now, or he's with us spiritually by his spirit. Amen. But there's coming a time when we will be physically and bodily and eternally with the Lamb on Mount Zion as the 144,000 redeemed by his blood. For all eternity. Christians love Christ. We see that here. Christians are like Christ. As they're in Christ. And Christians one day. They are now. But they will one day. Fully and physically. Be with the Lamb. On Mount Zion. Well we have to close there. We uh, went probably as long as usual. But nevertheless. Um. I do want to just, before we break up into our groups, suggest a few things to pray for very quickly. And perhaps I'll pray for those. And then we'll 
break up into groups. Pray for the ministry of the word of God this week coming. Uh, in Sunday school, we're going to survey 1 Tim, Timothy. In the AM, we're going to go back to the life of David. Uh, I'm just not sure exactly where in, in the life of David. Uh, it's in 2 Samuel somewhere. And then in the evening, it's second Sunday. So is that to Mike scheduled? I think Mike, pray, uh, pray for Mike as he uh, prepares to preach to us in the evening meeting. And then again, pray for those few visitors that have been by us. Pray for Ray, especially the older gentleman. He wasn't here because of his wife's sickness on Sunday. But he sits over there, and I met with him Monday or something like that, Tuesday maybe. And uh, he hopes to come by us more regularly now. Uh, and then also, Miss uh, Carpenter, uh, Lisa or Greg, is there an update? Anything we can pray for you guys in particular? And then pray for the sick, sick ones among us. How about uh, the little Miller girl? Has she recovered some? Okay. Okay, good. All right, well, let's pray for those, and then we're dismissed uh, or divide up into groups. Our Father, we thank you that you've given us in your word every single reason to have hearts filled with gratitude and hands and feet, eyes and ears motivated to walk in obedience to your word. We thank you, Father, for the Lamb who shed his blood, who now ensures his 144,000 will ere long stand before the, thong, the throne faultless. And then, Father, we thank you for the Sabbath last and for the word of God as it was preached. And we pray for that which is to come. And we ask that you'd help those who will handle your word and bless it to our hearts. We pray for those visiting, that you would continue to educate them and direct them. We think particularly of Mr. Ray and pray, Father, your blessing upon this older gentleman. We thank you for Miss Lisa's uh, update and pray, Father, that you continue with our sister and strengthen her body and encourage her soul. And we pray for this upcoming test, that it might be used by you, Father, to, to, to reveal any cause or causes of her sickness. But we pray, Father, ultimately that you help us to rest, rest our hearts and souls in your care. And then, Father, we do thank you for the little Miller girl and pray your blessing upon that family as they, as they recover from the sickness. And then, oh, Father, we ask that you be with Morgan, who is great with child, and the other ladies with child. And we ask your blessings to rest upon these dear ladies. And now be with us as we... Divide into groups, pour out your spirit upon us, and help us, O oh Father, to pray unto you humbly but confidently for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.